Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. This episode is so good. It is with Dr. Corinne Erickson, who is a board-certified dermatologist and the owner of Georgia Skin Specialist. She is native to Georgia, which I feel like is unique these days. She grew up in Macon prior to venturing to Stanford for her undergrad degree and University of Rochester for med school. She went to the University of Maryland for her intern year in internal medicine and her dermatology residency. And throughout her career, she's written numerous scholarly articles on melanoma, skin cancer treatment, drug rashes, and skin infections. And one of my favorite things about Dr. Erickson is she really takes an integrative approach to dermatology and she works with her patients on overall health, wellness, relevant to their skin concerns and goals. And she really stays up to date on the research as it relates to specific probiotics for skin. And she has a special interest in hormone related issues. So female hormonal acne, hair loss, rosacea, skin aging. And then after losing her grandmother to melanoma, she really became dedicated to the skincare surveillance, education, and treatment space. She really believes in enhancing skin longevity through medical grade skincare, laser, energy-based rejuvenation treatments, and lifestyle. And in her free time, she loves spending time with her family, her husband, her two children, and my favorite part, her three doodles. She is very active and creative and she plays tennis, does Pilates and writes. I really know you guys are going to learn something in this episode about skincare. And if you live in the Atlanta area, she has both a conventional side that takes insurance and she has an aesthetic side. So make sure to check out Georgia Skin Specialist. She is absolutely fantastic and I'm constantly impressed with her approach to dermatology. I am incredibly excited for this episode with Dr. Erickson. She is a dermatologist that actually cares about what's going on in the inside. Um, Maybe there's a lot of dermatologists that do, but she feels like one of a kind. And so we are going to talk today about the connection with our internal body and our skin. And we're going to talk about some things that we can do with our lifestyle. So I want to first, like the skin is the largest organ, right? Correct. And I feel like so often we like forget it's an organ that needs to be taken care of. So when we think of just general skincare, I just want to go like to the basic, is it very important to have a daily routine for our skin? Right. That's a great question. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So the skin is our largest organ. It's also our first line of defense against harmful things in the environment. Um, It has its own army of immune cells within it. Um, And it has this amazing ability to protect us. So in order for it to perform that function, we really need to maintain its integrity. You know, in functional medicine, you talk and think a lot about leaky gut syndrome. I talk a lot with my patients about leaky skin syndrome. And what's really interesting is that a lot of the things that can go wrong internally 
start with an impaired skin barrier. Even things like food allergies could originate with contact with those foods through an impaired skin barrier rather than ingestion of those foods over time. So I think it's something that we all need to pay really close attention to, not just so we don't get itchy or crepey, but also for our overall internal health. So with a leaky skin barrier, the first step in developing that leak is when the skin cells dehydrate. And I think about healthy skin as a nice, beautiful penny tile bathroom floor with beautiful mortar sealed between, and then a leaky, unhealthy skin barrier is when that mortar gets cracked. And then you see things like mildew and infections Mm -hmm. and inflammation take hold. So the inflammatory response happens when bacteria that are normally present on the skin, when environmental pollutants that are ubiquitous, when irritants from our products and preservatives leak in and generate this inflammatory response. So everyone does need just a day-to-day way of taking care of their skin. If you want to keep your teeth, you brush them every day. If you want to keep your skin healthy, you should be cleansing it appropriately. You should be restoring the hydration that it needs. So at a very minimum, people need to make sure they're cleansing, but not over cleansing. We live in a society of sterility and the sterility has really created, I think, a lot of issues more so than it solved sometimes. Obviously, we want to stay away from infections and disease, but cleansing, um, particularly the sweatier skin fold areas on a day-to-day basis, but with nothing harsh that's going to strip your natural skin oils away from you. Those oils are helpful. They're helping maintain a healthy skin microbiome. If you take those away, the bad bacteria and yeast can overgrow. So wash with something gentle. I, I don't like any of the antibacterial cleansers. I really try and keep my patients you know, paraben-free, fragrance-free. And then after cleansing the skin or even rinsing off, restoring some moisture the water will actually paradoxically dry your skin out. So if you can put a good moisturizer on every day after you shower, and this is not just for your face, this is for your whole body. The arms and legs get flaky too. In fact, we have far fewer oil glands on the arms and legs than we do on our face. That can really help maintain that healthy hydrated barrier, keep the bad stuff out, but also keep the good stuff in. I had a friend that was telling me, she was like, it's so funny. Everybody takes care of their skin from their chin up, and then you can just see their neck Like you can like tell that they have not done anything with their neck and the rest of their body. And I was like, that is really funny how much emphasis we can put on our like face skincare, but then just totally forget about all the other parts of our body. Um, There is this movement in the functional medicine space that a lot of the like natural beauty people talk about is like cleansing your face with oils. What are your thoughts? Like, have you looked at that? Have you, do you have any feedback on that? Oh, I've, I've looked at it. I've tried it. I read about it. Um, and what I've, what I've discovered is that it's not just a movement. It's like oil cleansing has taken on this religious magnitude (laughs) for people. And so I'm real careful about getting too critical of oil cleansing. So this, but this is what I tell my patients who are oil cleansing. If you think back to high school chemistry, like attracts like, and the reason that oil cleansing works is that you're putting an oil on your skin that is binding with oils on your skin and then you wipe it away and your skin is clean. So that's the rationale behind oil cleansing. It's basically the oil portion of a surfactant that's in a regular cleanser. So it works well if you're wearing makeup, if you have other sources of oil on your face, oil cleansing can be fine as a first pass to take it off. Where people get into trouble is that it dries the skin out. It can actually irritate the skin by removing too many of your skin's own natural oils. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that you're doing it 
correctly. Also, there's a lot of oils out there that have um, essential oils within them, and those can also be a little harsh and irritating. So that's just how I, I frame it to patients. I think some people really do well with it. I do see quite a few people whose skin is very dry and they're confused because they're putting a lot of oil in their skin, but that's why it's stripping away too much of the natural oil. So at the very least, if you cleanse your face with oil or a cleanser, the moisturizing is a critical step after. You still need to moisturize mm-hmm. your skin afterward. Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember seeing this uh, post one time on social media that they did of someone's skin when they didn't drink enough water and they were chronically dehydrated and the photo of someone's skin when they were well hydrated. And I don't know if this photo was just like pulled me in, but I was like, wow, the hydration and skin and wrinkles and just like the health of skin. Do you feel that water plays that big of a role with how our skin looks? Like can you see dehydration in your patient's face? Oh, it it jumps right out at you. So our skin contains a sugar molecule called hyaluronic acid. And hyaluronic acid, each molecule binds a thousand times its weight in water. And that's what gives us this suppleness and the hydration to the skin. So in order for hyaluronic acid to be able to do a good job, we have to stay internally hydrated. And you definitely notice a difference um, when when a patient comes in and they've had a late night out and they've been you know, maybe consuming more alcohol and the under eye area gives everybody away a little bit first. Yes. <laughs> um, so that that's an, definitely you can tell the skin looks more aged because when, that, um, when it's dehydrated, the fine lines and wrinkles do tend to be more visible, which is why putting a nice high potency hyaluronic acid serum is like giving your skin a drink of water and you get this beautiful instant gratification and things plump right up again. So, And should that be before your moisturizer or with your moisturizer if you do? Yeah. If you do a hyaluronic acid serum, I would put it on first. Um, good tip to know is that in the skincare world, you can apply things thinnest to thickest to improve their absorption. It kind of mm. blew my mind when a rep told me that a few years ago, and it makes so much sense. But most of the hyaluronic acid liquid serums or gels are thinner than mm-hmm. your moisturizer. Okay. Okay. And cleansing, going back to that, like, do you recommend twice a day? Like are most of your patients waking up and cleansing their face? Or do you feel like that once a day washing your face before you go to bed is adequate? It depends on the patient. Um, but for most of my like adult female patients where we're being really mindful about skincare and skin longevity, I recommend washing twice a day. Now I recommend a gentle cleanser typically in the morning mm-hmm. and then a few nights a week. That's a great opportunity to incorporate like a gentle alpha hydroxy acid based cleanser to get a little bit more of that gentle exfoliation on the skin. Also a little more powerful for moving, removing things like the day's makeup and sweat and oils. Okay. And sun, I feel like is the other big area. Like this is, I always like to get really, really granular with our listeners because I'm like, they listen and can implement so many new changes, right? That little by little. So I always think about the sun as like one of the other big things for skin that we talk about is like, are you wearing sunscreen? Um, So I want to know the vitamin D balance with, you know, how do we absorb enough vitamin D but still protect our skin? Do you have any recommendations on that space or like what SPF it should be, how often we should apply? So let's go into the sunscreen and the sun and how that impacts our skin. And is it as dangerous as what we were taught, like of the, you know, laying outside with baby oil and skin cancer, or is there an in-between? Like, what are your thoughts in that space? Yeah. And I feel like my field is you know, sort of partially responsible for a vitamin D deficiency epidemic. So I talk a lot about vitamin D supplementation mm-hmm. with my patients because the reality is that a recipe for melanoma, which is the most deadly of skin cancers, is intermittent intense UV exposure. So tanning beds, 
tanning at a beach, tanning at the pool through the summer, that's your melanoma recipe right there. And we know that. We know far more common than that, cumulative sun exposure, and we're talking day-to-day, driving to the grocery store, driving to the office and back, walking your dog. That cumulative exposure is what leads to the far more common types of skin cancers, basal cells and squamous cells, which while they're far less aggressive, can still be very problematic and costly and generate huge scars in aesthetically sensitive areas like the middle of the face. So What I tell my patients is that vitamin D is critical. You have to have enough vitamin D, but you can get it through supplementation very effectively and very safely. We know that if you rely with lighter susceptible skin types on sun exposure for your vitamin D load, you are going to increase your risk of getting skin cancers. And since there is a safe and effective way to supplement, that's how I frame it out to my patients and recommend um, recommend they get it. Well, and I read a study a long time ago, I don't know if you saw this one, of Hawaiian lifeguards, and they tested their vitamin D. And a lot of them were still suboptimal. And they were Hawaiian lifeguards that are outside all day. So I always talk to my patients, like, even if you try to be out in the sun without sunscreen on for 15, 20 minutes and skin exposed, you aren't going to get the amount of vitamin D you need, most likely, to keep your levels optimal. So we always check vitamin D levels here because I don't think everybody needs to take, you know, 10,000 a day. It's very individualized. But we are very much on board with test your levels, figure out the right amount that you need. And so you are on the camp, which it sounds like we are too, is that like SPF is very important to decrease your risk of skin cancer. So what, is there a certain number that you find? Cause I've read certain things that if you get above 50, it's really not making a big difference. Is there, is that a myth? Is that true? What do you think about the SPFs and how often you should be applying? So the biggest thing with the research there is 30 should be the floor. Don't go lower. Um, You can go higher. Now, to your point about is anything over 50 really making much of an impact? Not significantly if you're applying the appropriate amount of sunscreen. So to cover an adult body, it takes about an ounce of sunscreen, shot glass full of sunscreen. Very few of us do that. So if you take a 30 and you only put on about 25%, you're actually not getting a full SPF 30. So the rationale behind going higher is that if you're going to be a little stingy with it, because sunscreen's expensive and it's kind of messy, then go a little higher. It's certainly not going to hurt. Um, it's more important that you pick a good broad spectrum sunscreen. 30 should be the lowest number. I do advise mineral blocks rather than the chemical sunscreens. I find that they're much better tolerated. I like it that they go on a little white and pasty because then you know you've covered that area. Um, they're better for the environment, um, a lot more, a, fewer concerns with any kind of hormone imbalance. So 30 mineral-based broad spectrum. Reapplication. So sunscreen water-resistant testing is done with just submersion and not with getting in the water, toweling off, getting back in the water, toweling off, which is more realistic for when we're at the beach. So what I tell people is every two hours, if you're really just submerged and hanging out, but if you're getting in and out of the water, you need to reapply every time you sweat or get wet Mm -hmm. and then towel dry because you're wiping the sunscreen Mm -hmm. away and nothing is waterproof. You may notice the labeling has changed and now even the water resistant have to say if it's up to 40 minutes or 80 minutes. So that's another really important thing to pay attention to because they're not all the same. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why I hang out under the umbrella. <laughs> it's it's why honestly I wear I wear a gigantic hat and I've really embraced the UV protective factor fabrics. I think it's a little bit cooler. It's definitely more impactful than just a white cotton t-shirt mm-hmm. to wear a UPF factor swim shirt. So do you have any favorite brand? Is that you know a great one is Coolabar? Okay, uh, that they have excellent 
excellent products. Um, but you can find them pretty readily now on, on Amazon. I mean, it's just easy to find. Well, having kids, that was like so important to me is finding something that I can just like cover their entire body with. So I don't have to worry about the sunscreen as much because they're, they're like wiggle worms. They, they are, and they're active and they're busy and their skin is very absorptive of everything. So I feel better about throwing a rash guard and ankle length swim trunks on yes. my kids, even yes. my daughter. <laughs> and, uh, they are happy not to get sunburned. I know. So. I know. And we're happy because we're not covered in mineral sunscreen every 30 minutes. Uh, I wanted to kind of transition into a personal thing that you and I talked about. We were talking about how my skin, I feel like I do so much to keep inflammation low, but I have red on my cheeks. I've got like little pink rosy cheeks and rosacea runs in my family. And so I was talking with Dr. Erickson and you guys know, you see me on Instagram. I sit in my sauna every single night and work for an hour. And she's like, well, how much heat exposure do you have? And I realized all of the different things in my life are really encouraging more of that vascular appearance, right? I exercise. I love to be hot. I'm a snake. I, I branch away from cold, right? My shower makes me a lobster, right? So obviously I need to kind of work on that side of things, but I want to talk about some of the lifestyle things that are maybe not unhealthy, but that can impact our skin depending on the person. So we chatted about heat. We chatted about caffeine. Kind of tell me some of the things that you walk through with your patients um, if it's like a redness and a vascular issue. Right. And and heat is a big one because with rosacea, for example, which stage one rosacea is just very readily prolonged flushing and blushing of the face, especially the mid-facial area, heat and sun are the two most common triggers of that. Well, there's some things that generate internal body heat Mm -hmm. that are good for you, um, like exercise and, you know, having a cup of hot tea, you know, these, there's some positive health benefits to them, but you have to weigh it out. So I have a lot of conversations with patients like my melasma patients, which is also heat sensitive and my rosacea patients. Okay. Well, you're doing hot yoga three times a week. Could we maybe do some not hot yoga and just reduce a few of those exposures or if, okay, pick your poison. If this is going to be your heat exposure, let's talk about these other trigger factors that maybe you could do less of because everything's a balance Mm -hmm. and nobody should feel like they have to change their life just because they're susceptible to rosacea or to melasma. But there are some things that if you could do less and just make that small change. Well, you had a great idea of even bringing a cold cloth you know, can you like yeah. trade out a cool cloth to keep it on your skin? And that's great. But it was so funny. I started thinking after this conversation, I was like, I love to drink everything hot. I eat only spicy food. I love to exercise. If I can be in a 110 degree room, I want to. And I'm like, there is not a cool thing. Like I am fire. Like if you look at energy, mm-hmm. uh, I was actually, we were just talking to an entrepreneur on one of these other episodes, Christy, and she just moved by the lake. And she said, the lake, that water has made me less productive. I'm fire, right? If you look at like heat and cool, it's kind of interesting. And so I feel like I might move away from cool because I am always a productive, a heat, a driven, which is not a reason not to do the cold, right? Like this is this is me coming on here saying that I need it. Right, right. I think that your your skin is also telling you that you need it. And it's surprising that you're not redder than you are. I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, know. I know. And right now I'm warm in this room. Yeah. So we're, we're heated up. So some of the most common things that you treat, I would love to hear about those. So rosacea, melasma. Um, I know you and I have talked about acne. 
what are those the main ones or are there like, what would you say are the top five conditions that you see in your practice? So rosacea, there's a lot of rosy folks roaming around Atlanta. And I, I love taking care of rosacea because it really brings together my interest in skin, but also internal health and inflammation and the gut microbiome. So I get to really dig into that conversation. Um, I take care of a lot of female hormonal skin issues. It's a, it's a passion of mine. I think you know, we kind of get, we find our path as providers and as a type one diabetic, I have personally started seeing a lot of patients, um, with other endocrine issues. We just bond over that. It's just, and it's just kind of found me. Um, so I love taking care of hormonal issues of the skin, such as the female hormonal acne. I love taking care of female pattern hair loss, um, actually hair loss of all types, love taking care of melasma, which is a hormone related condition of the skin. So those are some of my favorite things to address. And then I see a fair number of patients for just general skin cancer surveillance, which I really think of as overall skin health assessment. Like it's not just about your moles. Those are important, but it's about everything we talked about initially with the skin barrier and, and other signs of inflammation as well. And that should be once a year, right? Like the people listening should do a good skin check once a year. Is that after a certain age or is that always... I wish there was a set guideline on that and there isn't. So what I advise is that it's it's nice to get your kids kind of a baseline appointment with a dermatologist around puberty because that's kind of when their hormones are shifting, when we like to teach them how to wash their face. We talk about sunscreen. Um, sometimes the girls are wanting to tan. Right now, the, the girls are spending thousands of dollars at Sephora on skincare. We have to straighten that out. So, <laughs> so that's kind of my like, get get your kids in. If you have kids in the teenage years, like early teen years, get them in for a baseline. It probably won't be every year. If you don't have any history of skin cancer, if you don't have a strong family history of skin cancer, once a year is typically appropriate. My patients who do have a history of skin cancer are on every three to six month cycles though, just depending on the type. Melanoma, we see them a little more frequently. Is that immediate family history or extended too? And typically first degree family members is what you look for. Okay. Um, yeah, I know my parents are so great about going every single year. They go together. It's like their little date day. They like go to the dermatologist. They do their full body skin checks. Uh, and one of the things that they do that I love, and I think you and I talked about this too, is dermoscopes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's such a cool thing because my husband, he went to a dermatologist that I'm not, of course, going to name because I don't want to say anything bad, but they removed every single mole on his torso. He had uh, keloid scars, like 13 moles removed and only one came back mildly abnormal. And it gave him a really bad taste where he doesn't want to go back and get his skin assessed because they're going to chop him up as he says. Um, And so I just now I like asked dermatologists that I sent to like, Hey, do you use dermoscopes? Do you look at the moles really closely before you just remove them? Because that's very invasive for people. Right. I mean, a two second shave removal leaves a forever scar. So I take that very seriously. I use a dermatoscope. All of our providers do. We are very thorough. We look at every single mole with the dermatoscope. Um, I rely very heavily on that. I don't know how I would practice without it. I think it, in many cases, it's fascinating what I see through the dermatoscope that I wouldn't see with the naked eye. And 
I think it saves people ultimately from unnecessary excessive biopsies. The other thing that I use because the technology is there is I do a lot of mole photography. It helps me track a mole. Like if there's a suspicious one, a little odd on the arm, but the patient swears it's been there for 10 years and it has always had that dark spot in the middle of it. Okay. You know what? We're going to monitor it. We don't have to, we don't have to take it off and put scars all over the body. We also sometimes will use a method of sampling moles um, called Dermtech, which is a tape stripping method that mm. just uses adhesives to strip the cells off the surface. And we send it off and it tests for um, common genetic mutations in melanoma. And we get a grade, is this high risk, is this low risk positive for the mutation? It can't be used on every patient or in every site, but it is a nice option to have, particularly if you don't want to put a you know scar on someone's face or the middle of, of a woman's chest, which is, co- which is cosmetically sensitive. So I did not know that existed. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's an interesting test. So if it came back abnormal, could it also be abnormal cells? Like it's not necessarily cancer, but then you would know you need to biopsy. Then we would know it's worth doing the procedure. Yeah, uh, I love that. That's kind of like we do a colagard, right? Like if it's positive, it doesn't necessarily mean you have colon cancer, but you have to get a colonoscopy. Yes, exactly. It's it's a great screening yep. tool. I just love your whole approach to skincare and just like taking the individualized approach and also realizing that people don't want scars on their entire body. Like I just, I love the direction that we're going in dermatology. Uh, you also have a lot of different devices. Like you have some lasers, you have some of the kind of cool, fun things that I know absolutely nothing about on the aesthetic side. So I want to kind of switch gears and talk about aesthetics from maybe like most natural to least natural. This is something my patients in functional medicine ask me all the time, Kristen. They are like, how bad is Botox, right? Should I be doing these lasers? Should I be doing what they call these vampire Uh, facials. So I kind of want to hear from your perspective of what you've seen both clinically and in research of like most natural to least natural on the aesthetic side. Yeah. And I always kind of joke with patients um, that arsenic is natural. So you have to be, I I think about it as more of how to (laughs) maintain, and I got that from a colleague of mine a few years ago, which cracks me up, but um, (laughs) how to maintain the health of your skin. And that's in the setting of a skin, an under, underlying skin issue, or just saying, I want to have the longest skin span. I can. I want my skin longevity to be optimized. What are the options? Well, I'll always start with skincare. It's the foundation of everything. Um, and there's patients who want to stay more in that natural sphere. And we can talk about different plant-based extracts with antioxidants and bakuchiol instead of retinol. But a good skincare regimen at the foundation is really important. And, and SPF, of course. Layering on top of that, um, I really love energy-based skin rejuvenation because it stimulates your own collagen and elastin production. So it uses your stuff. It's taking your fibroblasts, it's waking them up and saying, make more collagen, make more elastin. Let's stay lifted, smooth, and tightened. And that I love because once you develop your collagen, it just degrades. It does degrade, but it degrades slowly over time. And just like building muscle mass, it's something that has to be maintained. You can't go to a trainer for every day for a month and then expect your results to be there if you stop exercising. Mm -hmm. So you do have to maintain all of this and good skincare can help. Um, Botox is probably the most common um, injectable that I do in my clinic. Um, Botox is botulinum toxin and in high doses and systemic release creates a lot of issues and gives you botulinum. It can make you really, really sick. In tiny doses that we use in dermatology injected by someone who's very familiar with the anatomy, it really does make patients feel better. 
Um, there are studies that show that injecting Botox into the glabella, which is the area between your brows. So when you furrow and squeeze your brows together, you get the 11s or the 111s. And um, that, um, that facial expression actually triggers more feelings of depression. And so treatment of that area with Botox and stopping that feedback between muscle movement and mood actually improves mood and can help patients feel better. It also really relieves some tension headaches as well when we inject in the forehead. It's not something that everybody wants to do. As far as safety of it, small doses, right spot, the, botox, the botulinum toxin itself is actually gone within 24 hours. It's just the impact on the acetylcholine release that persists for the three mm -hmm. to four months. So you're not walking around with a toxin circulating in your system. And I think when I've explained that to patients, that's really helped them kind of wrap their heads around it and decide if that is a direction that they want to go. When you look at some of the things that they're using Botox for, and I don't know the like units or how much would be used, but one of the spaces I find really interesting is pelvic floor dysfunction. And I imagine the amount of Botox that has to be injected to correct pelvic floor dysfunction. I mean, those are large muscles. And the safety profile on those is actually fantastic too when you look at systemic involvement with the neurotoxin. Um, so I know we're talking like units. We're talking like I might inject... A high, like a high number of units for a whole patient treatment might be, might be 50 units, you know, and with these muscle groups for kids who have CP, pelvic floor dysfunction, you're talking hundreds of units. Yes. And that's when you run into that systemic botulism that we obviously are worried right. about. Well, and I was even exploring though, the side effects of those and they're still very mild. Still very low. Um, which is kind of interesting. And then also like the TMJ. Of course, mm -hmm. they're using it a lot for TMJ and seeing improvements there too. That's probably my latest, most requested area. Yeah. It, it slenderizes the lateral face a little bit, but patients come in and they've got a night guard, they're doing all the right things, but they still have these tension headaches. I mean, COVID stressed us out. Yes. And so the TMJ Botox is really a fun area to treat and patients, they feel better. They're less tense. Again, there's, there's other positive of psychological impacts of of the Botox treatments. Well, and this is what I think it's such an individualized approach with everything because you look at things like alcohol, for example. Like we know alcohol is not good for us. And when we were sitting here having the Botox conversation, we were having a glass of wine and they were joking with me and they said, Kristen, like that glass of wine you're drinking right now is probably worse for you. And I'm like, you're right. Like it's going through my digestive tract. It's going through my liver. I'm ingesting this, right? right. Um, and so everybody is, is different, right? And their approaches. And I just, I think it's really interesting that I can find research articles that occasionally drinking in moderation can improve our mental health because of it lowering our body stress response, right? Mm -hmm. And I had never read those studies on like the frowning and actually impacting our mood. It's kind of the opposite of, you know, if you walk around with a smile, even right. if you're not happy, you start to feel happy. There, It's a very interesting thing that I've never looked at that side of the research. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, but it's all, I think life is all about balance and what makes you feel good, right? Right. Right. And, you know, if somebody's looking for happiness in a vial of Botox, we have to have a very different conversation. Right. <laughs> but if, if they're like, I have a tension headache and I look angry all the time and I'm staring at my face in Zoom and that's making me unhappy, well, there we can fix that. Can fix that. So I also laugh. Do you know the frownies? No. Okay. <laughs> so I'm this company, I don't work with them. I don't know them. So I'm just bringing up a brand that I've been given ads on Instagram. And I guess I'm being fed these ads because of my space and more natural, but it's a natural Botox alternative. And it's these stickers that you have to put on your forehead and you have to leave them on there for like 15 minutes every single day and they tighten your skin. 
Oh my gosh. And you have to go look up these frownies. I was looking at this process and I like watched the whole video and I was like, I cannot imagine taking the time and putting them on the right muscles and holding them there for 15 minutes. And then if you do certain things, like if you run or sweat, you have to like reapply your frownies and and you should just go check them out. Just go check them out because now you're going to have a patient next week that asks you about frownies and you'll be like, I do know what this is. Uh, oh, it's probably showing up on my Instagram now because my <laughs> phone's in the room. <laughs> it hears us. But I'm like, man, a little bit of Botox every three months, you know, whatever time frame it is versus like these daily frownies. Um, but I do, I think it's a very individualized approach and having these conversations with your dermatologist. So you still do the aesthetic side of your business. Um, okay. And you also have estheticians that work with you. Yeah. So our, our medical providers, our MDs, our nurse practitioners, and our PAs, do injectables. So any kind of Botox or Dysport or filler, that is going to be done by one of those providers. We do have a a 20-year seasoned senior laser licensed esthetician, and she performs the energy-based procedures that we offer. And those are light-based, like broadband light, uh, Moxie, which is a 1927 nanometer laser that's great for melasma and retexturing and sun damage and also reduces your risk of subsequent skin cancer by 50%. I mean, these are amazing. I bring on devices that make your skin healthier. I'm not just about things looking glossy and pretty. I want the skin to look good because it is good. And so I stay that way in our aesthetic device space as well. So we do um, the BBL, the Moxie, we do some radio frequency microneedling, which are tiny, tiny needles that get placed in the skin and with a burst of radio frequency to create collagen degradation because injury generates healing. Mm -hmm. And that's an awesome procedure for somebody who may want to be a little bit more lifted, but doesn't want to go to the extreme of plastic surgery and go under the knife or have threads implanted in their face that stretches everything back. I Again, I, my philosophy is let's use what you have. Let's use what your skin can create to heal and improve. And when we were talking about the lasers, it's not something you have to do forever. Like you do a few rounds of them and you were saying maybe with your lifestyle, if nothing changes, like you might need to do once a year, but the lasers is kind of like, are most of them like a one to three sessions? They're not come every week for. Oh, exactly. There's, there's this, sometimes I feel like a broken record. I'm like, it's three treatments spaced four to six weeks apart times three. And then in six months, you may want to do a little maintenance treatment. And that really is kind of a general guideline with these procedures. And as long, especially with pigmentation, like the BBL, which you may hear of referred to as IPLs, the old technology or a photofacial that's taking browns and reds out, it's the results are going to be as good as you are at protecting your skin and modifying those lifestyle choices. If you're we're treating your rosacea and we zap all the red blood vessels away, but you keep getting in your sauna every night mm-hmm. for an hour and drinking hot I think tea, she's talking to me. Um, then <laughs> we may need to do it a little bit more frequently just to maintain those results. Well, and I'm going to go do this. I already told you, but I'm going to go do this and then I'll share my results with you guys because I would love to uh, be the guinea pig because I've never done any of the lasers. I'm the most, I always say it's like I'm so low maintenance to a fault. Like I don't color my hair. I like, I literally just started getting a better skincare routine because you gave me giveaways. I'm like, this is, this is where I'm like, I need a lot of help. And if you guys are listening, remember this whole podcast is about little by little, little becomes a lot. So together we can make like very small changes. Now I hydrate, I eat anti-inflammatory. I get lots of good, healthy fats. Um, but I'm learning a lot of the things I need to do now. So I love this. 
Well, you're doing a very good job. Your, skin, your skin's looking good. <laughs> um, is there anything else when it comes to skin health that you want to share? I feel like we've covered a lot from cleansing to hyaluronic acid, moisturizing. I think the one space maybe before we wrap up that I'd love to cover just briefly is hair loss because this is such a huge thing, which I know we could do a whole episode on hair loss, like from a nutritional to a hormone, but there's a lot more research I'm reading in, and this is, we've kind of touched on this, but certainly there's a little bit in the low dose oral minoxidil for women that I'd like love to hear your take on. Um, because my understanding is it's going to work, but if you stop, it's going to fall out again. Like it's not at the root fixing any issue. Is that right? So hair loss, um, I love hair loss because it's complicated and multi-system and always multifactorial. I very rarely is there, you know, one specific reason why someone's losing their hair, like an autoimmune condition, like alopecia areata, fine. But most of the time, the hair loss concerns that I have is gradual thinning, telogen effluvium, which is premature shift into the fallout phase. So instead of 10% of your hairs being ready to exit, you have 30% of your hairs being ready to exit, which is that just constant, your hair's just falling out all over the place. Is that worse post-COVID? Is that the yes. one of the causes yeah, for this? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So COVID has definitely created an uptick of telogen effluvium. And while it self-corrects and people don't go bald, it can take three months to stop. And then it takes a year or more to regrow and rethicken the hair. So I love taking care of hair loss and having these conversations. Things I always think about with women and hair loss, I think about nutritionally that we are often iron insufficient. We have plenty of iron to maintain healthy red blood cells and hemoglobin and not be anemic, but we don't have leftover ferritin stores for our hair to thrive. And so even well within the range of normal for ferritin, I'll supplement iron. I always check that in my patients. Vitamin D is another one. We need to have adequate amount to support healthy hair growth. And then thyroid. So many, so many people develop um, either a, a true thyroid malfunction or just an underperforming thyroid. And optimizing that thyroid health can be can make or break it. And, and that could be in the setting of hormone-induced hair loss as well. I use minoxidil a lot. I do use it more in men than in women because one thing it can do in women is stimulate facial hair growth. Minoxidil is really good at what it does. It's the generic ingredient in Rogaine. Mm -hmm. And Rogaine works. People hate it because it's messy and you have to keep doing it or your hormone-induced hair loss continues to fall off. So minoxidil, if it's a telogen effluvium, it's an acute episode. I'm just trying to like help my patient like push through it, get keep their hair in that healthy antigen growth phase longer. The minoxidil does not have to be forever. But if we are using it for hormone-induced hair loss, as long as those hormones are active, we're going to need to be on some minox on some oral Do you minoxidil. Find that spironolactone and minoxidil, one works better than the other. I think they work beautifully together. Okay. Actually. So you... and, in, and in women, I try and start with spironolactone and optimize that mm -hmm. dose before adding minoxidil because the spironolactone suppresses the facial hair growth that we're mm -hmm. trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like hair loss. And I know you like Nutrafol. You've seen some good improvements. I've seen amazing improvements um, personally in myself yes. and in my patients um, with the Nutrafol treatment. And I think just selecting the right one, because there's a, there's a few different ones out on the market, are helpful. They restore, I think of it as like fertilizer for your hair. So no matter what type of hair loss you're experiencing, let's optimize 
the nutrients. Let's optimize the environment to grow the hair. Mm -hmm. Same thing with scalp health. If you have an oily, flaky, inflamed scalp, that's not going to anchor the hair in place as well. So there's a lot of talk right now about uh, hair anchoring Mm -hmm. and really working from more of a scalp integrity and keeping those follicles secure. So those are spaces that I also talk about too, and make sure we're using the right kinds of shampoos and cleansing practices. And we're not allowing too much of yeast buildup Mm -hmm. to happen. Gosh, we see that so much at stat. I don't know if you see a rise of yeast buildup just with sugar in our diets and antibiotic uses and... Oh yeah. I mean, even personally, when I've increased my sugar intake, I'll get tinea versicolor Mm -hmm. on my skin. So yeah, the impact of sugar on your insulin... Um, production, Mm -hmm. which then leads to excessive sebum production, creates the environment for yeast overgrowth. Well, in our world, we always call sugar the devil's dandruff Um, (laughs) because it's like, it just feeds the fire everywhere. I love it. Everywhere. Well, I really appreciate this. I'm going to put your practice in the show notes so that people can find you. Uh, Is there anything else you want to share? Like, what is your Instagram handle? Because I'll make sure I put it on there as well. So um, our practice Instagram handle is at Georgia Skin Specialists. And then I'm at Dr. Corinne Erickson. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you being on here. This was great. I know we all care about our skin health because it is the first thing you see when you talk to anyone. So this is super, super impactful. So I appreciate you being on here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.